if you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. In that two to three minutes, 30% of the people in the room can't do what I just showed them to do five minutes. So how can I teach it in such a way that everybody gets it? And what if you're not teaching in a room at all, but online? Sooner or later, you're likely to have a virtual presentation of some type to give. Dr. Mark Johnson can tell you how to keep your students engaged, no matter what subject you're teaching. Not only is Dr. Johnson a professor at Pittsburgh State University in Pittsburgh, Kansas, where he's taught for 36 years, he is also a TEDx speaker and a training and development consultant in a number of trades industries. He has won multiple awards for teaching, and Dr. Johnson says there's one major mistake a lot of us are making when we teach anyone how to do anything. Dr. Johnson, before we get to talking about what makes a great, effective online presentation, I'd love to know, how did you first discover your passion for teaching? I'm blessed. I grew up in a teaching family. I am a university professor at the university that in 1907, my grandmother rode to Kansas in a covered wagon in 1907. And in 1917, 10 years later, she graduated from this institution with a lifetime teaching certificate in teaching. So I got a hundred year history of teaching in my family. I and my sister were teachers. I've had several cousins that were teachers, nieces and nephews. It's just kind of a way of life. I got the passion early when I was in 4-H. I started competing in public speaking when I was seven years old. And a lot of people say I haven't shut up since. So that's when I learned my passion for public speaking. What an incredible gift for anybody to give a child. In your TEDx speech, you share a concept I hadn't heard before, learning latency. How did you discover that one? I've been in career technical education, teaching teachers to teach for 37 years. And I'm always the guy that asks the different questions. And if you talk to teachers, most of them are pretty proud that 60 to 70% of their students can do what they teach them when they get done teaching the first time. But I've always wondered, what about the other 30 or 40%? And unfortunately in education, we do a lot of labeling. Uh, whether it's somebody has ADD or HD or they just, they're slow learners or they have different learning styles than I do. And we come up with all sorts of, but we've never addressed the fact that it may not be the student. It might be us. What if we could look at the methodology and change and tweak what we do so that when I get through teaching, Everybody in the room got what I said the first time I said it. And most people say, oh, I can't do that. It can't. It's methodology. Because if we're going to be masters of teaching, then we really ought to master it. We shouldn't be making excuses. So I did a demonstration seven years ago. I was asked to be a keynote presenter at the International Apprenticeship Education Training Conference in Palm Springs, California. 
front of 400 people that were training trust fund managers and directors for the apprenticeship training program for all of the United States and Canada. And I did a little experiment with origami, my paper folding technique. And you can see this, by the way, if you go to the YouTube on TEDx, Dr. Mark Johnson, Generation Y. And I did that for 400 people in a room. The first time I did just the lecture method, I told people what to do step by step and have them do as I said. Well, as you can imagine in the workplace, what happens, that's the same thing we do. We bring in, we talk you through, and then we set you at your desk, say, good luck, and we walk away and hope that you know what you're doing. And they don't. And in that demonstration, only 10% get what I say. Matter of fact, in that room of 400 people, only one guy got it right after my demonstration because I talked through it. There was no visual. There was no nothing for them to follow. And the interesting thing is that step two, since I'm not showing them, people are looking around and they're trying to figure out what to do, which is funny because nobody in the room knows what we're going to make. So it's a blind leading the blind. But the lesson for teachers is Students are looking for a role model. And if you don't provide the role model that you want them to see, they may find another one, and it may not be the best one you want. So if you expect them to perform well, you have to be the role model for it. So then step two is what I call the apprenticeship way. I do it with a paper airplane. See, when Miller came up with the four-step method of teaching in the 1960s, we all got it wrong. We thought it was a linear process. I show, you do, I evaluate. Makes sense. That's a good model, but it's not supposed to be linear. Because if I do it linear, by the time I get done teaching the whole process, by the time I get to the last steps, people have already forgotten some of the first steps before they even get to practice. So when I do the paper airplane, I show everybody step by step, and then I pass out the paper and say, now you fold it for me. In that two to three minutes, 30% of the people in the room can't do what I just showed them to do five minutes ago because of this thing of latency. Latency is the difference between when I deliver the information and when they actually apply it. And unfortunately, in American classrooms, we've built that into the system. Think about our science lab. We have biology, physics, chemistry. But what, how do we teach it? Tuesday, we have lecture. Thursday, they go to the lab. 48 hours later. People think science is a hard subject. I would argue it's not the subject. It's the way that we deliver, the way we teach it. What instead if we actually taught the lecture in the lab and said, okay, now let's try it out. And bingo, they do it immediately. I think people would get it. They'd be more excited about it and be able to retain the information well. So that thing on latency is critical. So I came up with a way to remove or almost all but eliminate latency. So what you do is, you teach the steps, but instead of teaching all of them in a row, you teach the first step, have them do the step, evaluate their performance, and correct it before you go to step two. 
I did that with 400 people in a room in Palm Springs, and all 400 of them held up their paper cup at the same time. You can teach everybody all at once. It's not them, it's me. The methodology I use to engage the learner and help them successfully do the steps I need them to do. If we follow that methodology, learning goes up, retention goes up, performance goes up. And if you stop and think in the workplace, especially if I'm teaching safety, I can't hope that they get it sometimes. They need it now or they may not go home tonight. They've got to learn. So how can I teach it in such a way that everybody gets it? That's critical stuff. And so I think, you know, and it's nothing new. Coleman wrote about it in 1930. But everybody today says, oh, we know latency. It's a natural phenomenon. No, it's not. It's natural because we let it occur. What if we could change the dynamic and change how we teach it? That's the latency. I'm remembering the science classes when you talk about latency in the lab here, and two days earlier was the lecture that I took back in college, and that was it. Plus, you also had students that maybe weren't there to be scientists in the first place. That was kind exactly. of exactly, exactly. And if you weren't a good note taker, and but that all dealt with hanging on to your memory. But if I do it immediately, it's instantaneous. I don't have to have all those notes. You just talked about it. It makes more sense. How do we apply that? I'm assuming that with the pandemic and everything, a lot of people, educators professionally and otherwise, are going to have to resort to teaching online. How do we apply that principle of learning latency and do it right now and show me to make an effective online presentation? The key to all teaching is engagement. We know that, and I'm fortunate enough that I'm in a university and we belong to the Quality Matters Consortium. Quality Matters uh, was a project created in Maryland that's a consortium of states that looks at the quality of online instruction. And so one of the other things that I do in my spare time is I'm a Quality Matters master reviewer. So we're engaged to look at online classes delivered across the country. And we're invited as a team to review them and give them suggestions on improving their online coursework. In that consortium, there are eight standards, but the standards are based upon alignment. And one of the keys that we talked about for a quality course, you have to have three types of engagement that occur for it to be successful. I have to have the student and the content engaged. So they're actively learning, applying, reading, learning the material. Two, they have to have connection with each other because students learn best when they share with each other and they learn concepts with each other. So the engagement is an important piece. And the third one is instructor to student engagement. It's not enough for me to simply post my materials online, have them read it, do the assignments and do the activities and the only time they hear from me is when I give them a grade. That's not teaching. Teaching is me having a conversation with my students and being engaged with them. So if I do an online post or discussion, 
then I need to be part of that. I need to interject my thoughts or say, hey, that's a great idea. Or, you know, you're just off a little bit. Let's go back here. And I kind of guide the conversation as we do that engagement. But it's me and them engaging because, face it, I'm the SME. I'm the subject matter expert, not the textbook. It's me. And so if they're going to learn practically, they have to learn from the expert in the room. And it's not me just spouting words. It's us having a conversation and asking me questions, me asking them questions. So the way to authentically engage is to keep them engaged throughout the session. One of the things that I hope that you noticed in my keynote the other day is that I just didn't talk for the 30 minutes. There were times that I had you reacting, raising your hands, doing the reaction buttons in Zoom, or I would have you participate. I did the hand clap activity when I talked about listening. I do a number of different things to get the audience part of it. There's a famous storyteller by the name of Doug Stevenson. He works with Fortune 500 companies around the globe. And he says, our story doesn't become their story until it resonates with them. And what that means is, if I'm just telling stories from my lifetime, that's cool. But my students think, well, there he goes telling the stories again. And they don't connect. But if I then tell a story and then have you reflect, okay, Dot, tell me a time when this happened to you. Or tell me about experience and you've seen something similar. Now, all of a sudden, you're starting to feel it from your own side and apply your thoughts and discoveries of that topic from your perspective. It has a lot more meaning than just listening to me go on with my story. So if we engage, we have to fully engage and get that participant part of the learning, not just me talking and disseminating. I love the idea of teaching as an engaged community, as a conversation, as opposed to a lecture. When you look at an online presentation as the expert, what grabs you immediately to the point that, whoa, I can't look away from this. This is really good. If they've got me engaged, if they're not just talking at me, if they're not. And here's the interesting thing. We know in research that adults become disengaged every three to five minutes. So if I've gone 15 minutes, and they haven't asked me a question. They haven't even asked for a hand raise or a thumb up. I'm already out of it. And so there's everybody else in the room. But if we start out and the first thing they say, so I'm going to know from everybody in the room. And all of a sudden, they're getting me involved in it. I know it's working. I'll give you a story that I learned about engagement. I used to think engagement meant I had to include everybody in the room. But then I realized that's not true. See, when I was 18, I was lucky. I got to go to Knott's Berry Farm in California, near in Anaheim. And they have a big amphitheater. And they had the world-class Dante, world's foremost hypnotist, was there performing in that amphitheater. And he asked, there were 1,500 people in there. And he asked for volunteers. And, of course, me, never lacking confidence, raised my hand. I was one of 40 people on the stage. He started going through and weeding us out based upon our susceptibility to hypnotism. And I was one of the 20 that stayed on the stage. 
And for the next hour and a half, he had us doing the goofiest things. People are laughing and enjoying watching us be idiots up on the stage. But we got through, I was down to the one of the last two people on the stage. Of course, then he started playing burlesque and the guy next to me just started. And I thought, uh-uh, I'm over. And so, <laughs> but here's something I know that 1,500 people were glued to the edge of their seat. They were fully engaged in anticipation what crazy thing he was going to have a student at. They were watching it. They were seeing it. They were fully engaged. And if you stop and think, if you've ever been to a magic show, I've got to see Chris Angel and David Copperfield and Penn and Teller, another great magician. Think about what they do. They bring audience members up and they'll do this trick that mystifies them. And everybody's fully focused because they want to see what they're going to do to them. So the art of engagement doesn't mean I have to physically have everybody doing. I've got to be engaging around doing so that all eyes are on what's happening and they're thinking about it from their perspective. So the art of engagement is getting everybody involved, but not necessarily physically, at least mentally and emotionally. How do you keep that art of engagement going when you get something to teach that's very, very dry? You mentioned in the presentation that you gave, and I won't say what organization, but that you were given some material to work with and it practically put you to sleep. Well, I'll tell you what. So I used, I'm a professor and I'm used to didactic teaching. And I got to say, some of the lessons I used to teach were extremely boring material. I teach people to teach. And part of that is teaching design, analysis, writing objectives, really exciting stuff. So I'm thinking, how can I spruce this up? So I went and I went to a conference and I saw a guy that taught us how to jump with babushka, scarves. And so what he would do is he would teach us there's two skills, throw, catch, throw, catch. And if you master those two skills, anybody can juggle. And in 10 minutes, he had everybody in the room juggling scars. So that, that's my ticket. So I went back to my classroom. And in task analysis, I teach people how to break their jobs down sequentially, step by step, so they can teach people how to do it. And so when we got to that lesson, I taught them how to juggle. And I said, if I can teach you how to juggle in five minutes, I can teach you how to teach anybody anything if we break it down step by step. So I use a lot of metaphors, analogies, activities that maybe are completely abstract or different from what I'm talking about. But when I relate the activity to what I just am doing, they see it and they understand it. You see, the key is people are visual. 83% of what we know we see. So instead of talking at them, if I can do an activity that they can visualize, they start to get it and understand. I had a teacher one time that taught electromagnetism, which is an atom throwing an electron off to the next, to the next, to the next. And so he asked the kids, how do I get current through a wire? How do I flip a switch and turn the line on? He said, let me show you. He brought in a tube of tennis balls. He had a tube this big, about this long, and he stuffed it with tennis balls. Then he said, what happens if I jam this other tennis ball in? 
He said, it's going to knock the tent pole out the other end. He said, let's try. And out it shot. He said, you just saw electromagnetism. The energy from the first ball went to the next, to the next, to the next, until it shot the last ball out of the tube. When I turn on the switch, I energize that first atom. It throws off an electron to the next, to the next, to the next, until the light comes on at the other end. In two minutes, everybody in the room understood the concept of electromagnetism, not because of a lecture, because they saw what happened. So I use a lot of analogies, metaphors, activities that they're thinking, what's this got to do with that? But at the end of it, they get the message. I do a program for sixth graders in Crawford County. We've been doing it for 20 years. It teaches leadership to students that are 12 years old. And we've done it for more than 11,000 students in our county in the last 20 years. And they learn concepts of teamwork, communication, diversity, conflict resolution, role modeling, servant leadership. We do it with activities. So, for example, with diversity, we do it with toothpaste. We give them a tube of toothpaste, and we have squirt all of the toothpaste out of the tube onto a paper plate. And we give them a toothpick and a straw, and we say, put it back in the tube. It's massive. They get it all over. They get it in their hair, on their hands, and all over. But the message they learn is, is we don't say things about people because you can never take it back. You can say you're sorry a hundred times, and they might, they may forgive you, but they won't forget it. It lingers. Like that minty, fresh aroma of toothpaste that lingers. After you try to cram it tube, there's still a green smear on the plate. It still lingers. It's still in a room. Same thing. So the best way is never say bad things about people in the first place. And they get it. I've had kids from 20 years ago that were in a program say, you remember to? Oh, yeah. Why do we do that? Don't say bad things about people because you can't take it back. They get the concept. So teaching them by seeing is a way to help them engage and understand, even if it's not absolutely directly related to what you're teaching. When we go with visuals, when we're teaching something online, what technologies do you like and what do you like to do? Yes. So when I'm teaching technology, I'm teaching, for example, one of the things with technology, instructional technologies I teach teachers is I do a lot with PowerPoint. And unfortunately, most people in the world have no clue how to use it. They use it as a text media instead of a visual media. Bullet skill presentation. Because nobody remembers the bullets. But if I put a visual on the screen, they instantaneously do it. Keep the information simple and so on. When I'm using technology and teaching technology online, I do it simple. Keep it simple so people can see it and understand it. Dr. Johnson says there's an important point to keep in mind. I just want people to know that online is not better or worse. It is different. And as we know about change, sometimes, and I got in trouble. I said something that maybe I shouldn't have. I said that maybe COVID forced some people that taught in 17th century styles of lecture to move to the 21st century and teach in more engaging ways. And I got in trouble for saying that. 
But I really believe that because sometimes we're forced to do things we really don't think we want to do when in actuality, I learned a lot in the last two to three years about how I can be better, how I can be more engaging, even when I'm not in the room. And, you know, before COVID, probably nobody ever said, oh, I'm going to go to a Zoom meeting and weren't excited about it. But you know what? I grew up in a time of distance learning where I would have to drive three hours to go teach class. Or I have to drive halfway across Kansas to attend a meeting. So I'd spend my whole day either traveling to it, attending it, and coming back. Now, pop on Zoom, do my two-hour meeting, and I still got six hours left to do what I need to do around it. This made me a more productive worker. I'm able to engage with more people. This is my third meeting today on Zoom in three different locations. I never would have had time to do that traveling. So this has been an opportunity for me. So look as change instead of think of it instead as an opportunity. Where can people find out more about what you're doing, the leadership program you just talked about with the sixth graders and your courses? Yeah, they can check me out at Pittsburgh State University in Pittsburgh, Kansas. That's Pittsburgh, not Pittsburgh. We don't have an H. So Pittsburgh, Kansas, Pittsburgh State University. You can go to Pitt State, P-I-T-T-S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U and search for Dr. Mark Johnson and you'll find me there. I've been here 37 years and I'm all over. I've done everything at the university. They call me kind of like the sergeant major of the military. I've never been an administrator, but I've had every leadership role that you can have and not be an administrator. I was student by president when I was a student. I was faculty center president here. I was faculty association president. I was a KNEA bargaining team president while I was here and chief negotiator. So yeah, you check Pitt State, ask for Dr. Mark Johnson and you'll find my information in media. With all those leadership positions, what do you consider one of the most valuable lessons you learned about leadership? I learned that leadership's not about my title, it's about what I do. It's about making a difference and making an impact in the lives of others. I was really shocked last night and surprised, but pleasantly. So our city of Pittsburgh, Kansas, awards the Spirit of Pittsburgh Award to a citizen that has made a huge difference in its community members and in the city and in the community. I got that award last night. It just shocked. And so, and I had a lady, her husband had been a previous winner, and she told me the cool thing about that award is it means that people have observed what you do and appreciate the value of it. They don't always tell you that. You don't always hear about it. But this is a symbol of the appreciation of the work you do. And to me, it symbolizes that I am making a difference. I'm making an impact. And that's what leadership is always about. It's never about me. I, when I was a kid, I thought about building my resume, getting those titles, finding that corporate ladder structure and getting the recognition. The real art of leadership has nothing to do with me or my resume. It has to do with the impact I've made on the lives of those around me. 
how do you give people the confidence and the freedom to do that? I've wondered about the intimidation factor, both with teaching technical skills and with teaching leadership. It is practice. I teach a class at the university called professional presentation. We found out that our graduates in our college, even though they took a speech class, really didn't get any skills to be an effective presenter. Speech teaches you the components of speech and how to write a speech, but you don't get enough practice to develop any confidence at all. And so our graduates would go out for internships in industry and be expected to give a presentation for a board of directors. Well, they were struggling. So they had me create this course about 20 years ago. And what I do is, it's 15 weeks long, so they give 15 presentations every week for standing up giving presentations and they're critiquing each other because they're learning and sharing and growing in that engagement and helping each other grow. And here's an interesting thing with the online learning environment. I thought you got to teach people how to do that face to face. That's the way you do it. But I learned a secret. See, when they did it face to face and I got 40 students in class, there's only time for everybody to speak once in my class. But by putting it online, they have to post a video and have other students watch their video and give feedback. Well, when you post a video, nobody posted the first time. I've got students tell me, I'll work for two hours and take 20 takes before I post my homework assignment. That means they've practiced it 20 times. Take that times 15, that's 300 practice. And so they're practicing more in a single semester in my class than their entire college career. And by the time they practice and practice and practice, they gain that confidence. My favorite story is of a student that when she first came in, she was so nervous, she wouldn't even look me in the eye. She just hated speaking. Matter of fact, the first night she said, Dr. Johnson, I hate to speak. I hate to speak. And when I get out of this class, I'm never going to speak again. And so I said, okay, okay, Maris, okay. End of the semester comes, she nails her final. Wonderful job. Two weeks later, I get a phone call. Yeah, what's up, Maris? You ain't going to believe it. I got a job. I said, I need to get a job. No, you don't understand. I just got hired by Target to be an executive trainer. I'm going to have to talk the rest of my life <laughs> and get paid for it. And so it's a transformational experience when we give people the power to have confidence in what they do. When you teach anybody who's going to be in a graduating class about staying relevant for the next, let's say, 30 years or more of giving value back to the community as you are probably going to do the rest of your life, what do you teach them? How do we stay current in a changing world? My lesson, well, first of all, as I said before, if you're not providing a role model for them, how are they going to learn? So it's not by what I tell them to teach them. It's also by how I model my life and my experience. So when I talk about you need to be a leader and change your community, change those around you, they see it by my example. Uh, you know, everybody joked, Doc Johnson, you're involved in everything. You're involved in so many different organizations and you 
always doing this. You're always coming up with great ideas. You're always good. I do that because that's my life. I've learned to make a difference and become involved. And I enjoy being part of old things and being a part of the in crowd and knowing what's going on and, and being able to voice an opinion. I'm not an administrator at the university. I'm a faculty member. And I have a year as a president and provost because I'm experienced and I've been around and they recognize the difference I make in other faculty members on this campus. I just don't teach students. I've got dozens of faculty at this campus that have used me as a mentor to help them get where they need to be professionally as faculty. And not just in my department. I teach in college of technology that I've helped nursing, math teachers, English teachers, modern language People all over the campus that have no relation to what I teach, but we're colleagues and we're a community. And in the community, you help those around you and you help us all grow. And so I believe my greatest gift in teaching people to change others' lives is to do it myself. That's where it starts, the model. Because then I can share examples of what I've done and give people ideas on what they can do. Because I applaud their successes and I applaud what they do. And I tell them, you need to share that with other people so they can do those great things too. And that's what it's all about, is sharing and helping people. Final question is usually my signature question for the podcast. If people could only get one thing from you about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you like them to take away from you? My quote that people quote me by is, you only know what you know until you learn something different. That actually came from Edward Demings, who's in the television commercial. He's the father of scientific management, and he's the one that taught Toyota all of the things in 1940s for them to be a great company and then brought it to America and started teaching engineers how to think about process control and quality control and things. But he's in a TV interview and a reporter kept asking him, well, why don't company, they know they need to change. Why don't they change? Why don't they change? And he said, how would they know? How would they know? They only know what they know. And I took that corollary and say, so we know that by diversifying thought and learning other things, we can grow ourselves and we can change ourselves. But we can only do that if we're open to new possibilities. So the way to change the world is to be open to change yourself. And you can't change it if you're doing the same old thing. Be willing to do it different. I'm 61, I'm four years probably from retirement, and most people my age are on cruise control, looking for that exit. I just took an ATD master trainer course last year so I could learn how to keep my craft up for the next five years. I revamped my entire curriculum. I used to have 15-minute videos, and I had 15 of them, and I was set. How I figured out Gen Z students are watching 20 minutes. So I trashed them all and I made 80 two minute videos. So now each lesson is a short segment, an activity, short segment, and an activity. And I talked to my one of my students. I said, So what do you think? Oh, I love it. 
I never could stand a 20-minute video. I didn't have enough time. But I can watch a couple on my break, and then I can watch a couple in the afternoon and a couple in the evening. By the end of the day, I've heard the whole lesson. I never could do that before because it was so long. And so, of course, I'm a professor. And heck, I used to sit three-hour lectures. I thought 20 minutes is nothing. But we have to change our perspective of our current learners, how they think and how they feel. Just because I know it my way doesn't mean you're going to learn it my way. I have to be adaptive and be willing. If I'm going to change your thoughts, I have to change my ways to let you know my thoughts. And so I have to think about that. And so I completely revamped it and did it. And guess what? My students love it. They love it. And here's the thing I say about creativity. There's a fine line between a genius and an idiot. If I do something and come up with an idea and try it and it works, woo, I'm a genius. But if I try it and it fails, I'm an idiot. But you know what? You have to take the chance and you never know. And in change, you change it, you tweak it until you get it right. But the key is be open to change yourself if you want to change everything. Dr. Johnson, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Dot. You and I have been listening to Dr. Mark Johnson, award-winning teacher, professor at Pittsburgh State University in Pittsburgh, Kansas, TEDx speaker, frequent consultant and trainer in the trades professions, and recent recipient of the Spirit of Pittsburgh Award. Congratulations, Dr. Johnson. Find out more about Dr. Johnson's courses on pittstate.edu. Once again, he is at Pittsburgh State University in Pittsburgh, Kansas, not Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh's being spelled without the H, P-I-T-T-S-B-U-R-G. And that website again, pittstate, P-I-T-T-S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U. When you go to the website, type in Dr. Mark Johnson in the search window and his information will come right up. And on YouTube, look for his TEDx talk, which you can find by typing in Dr. Mark Johnson, Generation Y. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.